chat before we get real started in today's episodes or today's episode there is several things we're going to be talking about in today's podcast mainly because I missed last week's podcast episode and all of the information that was going on with hearings and I got to get get everyone all caught up on Amy Comey Barrett and we're also going to be talking about the town hall that happened between Joe Biden and Donald Trump separate town halls And of course, we are also going to be talking about some new polling numbers and general election info going into the new week of the presidential uh, race as far as everything goes there. And we'll make sure we are good to go on Twitch as far as comments goes. And once again, uh, this podcast is produced live sometime during the week. I haven't quite figured out a date to settle on yet for live streams. It's usually Tuesday or Thursday as far as when I go ahead and do the live stream. So just keep your eyes out on that. Uh, And you can always follow my Discord or or, uh, Twitter. And I tend to tweet on one of those platforms or post on one of those platforms when I go live. And um, and in the podcast, of course, gets released to Apple and Spotify or whatever else you might be listening to your podcast from, of course. And uh, just for the commenters who are watching now or maybe watching in the future here, I do my best to read all your comments, but I have to kind of go back and forth between everything. So there is occasional times where I miss your comments and I don't do that on purpose or anything like that. Because I do love to hear all of your thoughts and um, and everything as far as that goes. But before I just blabber on too long, we'll go ahead and get into the main portion of the podcast. Or, well, the podcast in general. So, we all know about Amy Comey Barrett. And this is kind of past news. Because, again, this mainly happened last week with all the hearing dates. And I know that a lot of Americans watched at least part of the hearings, if not multiple days of these hearings, maybe not all six hours or however long the hearings go on for, but watched a significant amount of time of these actual hearings due to just the way 2020 has been this year. It was basically a movie, a feature-length movie, or a couple feature-length movies as far as everything goes for that direction. So I do know a lot of Americans, more than usual, were watching Amy Comey Barrett's hearings at some point throughout one of the days. Uh, and there's several people a part of the Freedom Scoop Network, and I'll give them a shout out as well. You can, If you like my sort of content or you just want to watch anybody who's more solo or not a part of a media network or anything like that, you can go to freedomscoop.com and check out Ed, Stephen and Garamus, R-Rated Conservative, The Generational Gap, The Freckles and Brit Show. These are all independent shows and podcasts and such to get more information about what's going on in today's ward from a perspective of an everyday American and not a perspective of a huge media company that we get a lot of news from and thoughts from. Um, as far as people go and 
that's why I was mentioning Ed, because Ed on his show, uh, his Red and Ed show yesterday, was talking about how he watched pretty much all of the hearings, and he usually has never done that before. He's always watched part of these hearings just to get some news or maybe some popular clips on YouTube, as we'll watch a little bit later, about what some of the senators and such said. But the main focus was he watched a lot more of the actual physical hearings than, uh, than he used to because he just simply had more time to do so. And I do feel like a lot of people had that extra time. And one of the weird things about before we get into reading these articles and listening to a lot of clips, since this all happened last week, I have a lot of YouTube clips uh, of popular highlights or popular moments that senators used uh, when questioning Amy Comey Barrett. But even if you're someone who didn't watch any of these hearings and you're just somebody who is just follows politics, not so much like religiously or follows it every day, but has a general understanding of the way politics work today, would probably be able to guess how the actual hearings went. And that was, well, if you were a Democrat, you were going against uh, Amy Comey Barrett. And if you were Republican, you were going for Amy Comey Barrett. But it went a little deeper in that. It, a large part of the hearings, especially with Kamala Harris's clip, we're going to be playing later on. And yes, she's a part of the Biden campaign and a potential vice president for this next uh, four years or for this presidential race now. She is a vice president candidate. So you do know that she has that on her mind through the Biden-Harris campaign. And that's something that's very valuable and something that needs to be understood. But a large part of her segment was talking about against Trump or why Trump was bad. And I'm not a fan of Trump. I don't think a lot of people are 100% pro-Trumpers and everything. A lot of people in general just think Trump is better than Biden. And there's also the other crowd that thinks Biden's better than Trump because of what Trump says on Twitter or whatever else. But in general, I think a lot of people just prefer one of the candidates over the other, but don't necessarily love either candidates. And that's one of the big things, that the hearings more seemed against Trump than they actually seemed against Amy Comey Barrett are really a, target politi a targeted political attack rather than an actual insightful commentary or insightful opinion over what Amy Comey Barrett is or who Amy Comey Barrett is. And a large thing I've been hearing, more on the conservative media side, which is important to note because those who are new or those who might not know, I try to at least see all perspectives. My bias definitely leans more conservative than it leans left or leans democratic or leans uh, liberal or whatever you know term where you want to use. I definitely lean a little more towards conservative than any other side of the aisle. But I do try to see all perspectives and work around because most often what's in between the two parties or what's most often what's in between the two articles you read from CNN and Fox is the truth. But the problem with the way news is now, and especially the way politics is now, is they're completely opposite and completely one from another. You can't be as far as... You, you're, you're physically as far apart as possible than any other time that I am aware of in history, really. At least in modern history, of how decisive the politics are today. You're either on the right or you're on the left, and there's no really in-between 
for a lot of Americans are, especially if you're someone that reads any sort of news network. Because as humans, we tend to want to be, a, be to group ourselves together with people that believe the same things or have the same sort of insights or the same sort of thoughts or any other type of agenda from that point on. So we're, we, we like to kind of match ourselves together, um, if that makes any sense. We want to group ourselves more with people that already agree with us. We like to hear that we're right. Every human does that. Every human appreciates being right and knowing that they're right. It's a, just a common thing between everybody. And that's why friendships get formed and that's why groups get formed and everything else. And the way politics works today is making those groups so entangled with each other, not the two groups together, but when you're in one group, you're entangled with everybody in that group that you never physically want to reach out of that group or physically want to remove yourself or see any other agenda but the agenda you already believe in and your individual group that you're a part of. And if you're somebody that is just an average American that gets your news from one news source or maybe two news sources, you have trapped yourself in that box. And it may be just out of human nature. A lot of humans don't particularly like to listen to politics or hear about news or whatever else. And that is because they don't want to be dogged down with all the negative opinions. Because a large part of what news is, is negative type of news sells more than positive type of news. That's why news tends to be a little bit more negative or a little bit more sad or a little make you angry at certain agendas that are getting talked about or certain things that are happening in news when there's a lot more other stuff and happy news that is happening. Uh, but all negatives tend to get covered and they want to drag you along in whatever agenda they want to push. Because make no mistake, if you're like Fox News, they're pushing an agenda. CNN, they're pushing an agenda. Every major news network is pushing an agenda. And unless if you get your news from multiple sources, you are only putting yourself in that one box. But then again, and this is a little bit of a side tangent more than just Amy Comey Barrett, but I noticed it particularly in these hearings because the senators are doing the same sort of stuff as the major news networks are doing, or at least making it a little bit more noticeable than they have in the past. And these media companies are very good at pushing their one perspective or their one agenda and trying to keep you inside that box. So if you're someone that watches CNN, because uh, CNN is extremely obvious about it, Fox News definitely has its downside, but they, they tend to kind of hide their perspectives a little bit more than CNN. CNN is definitely fully a perspective of against Trump, and you don't, every article kind of says the same thing and everything else. There's no really pro-Trump articles on CNN, so they're very easy to read on what perspective they believe in compared to other news networks. But I don't want to be be mistaken in saying that CNN is the only news source that does this because they almost all have their bias and have their perspective. CNN is just very easy to pick on. But before I just blabber on and say similar things a little bit different, the main thing I want to take away from this, and we'll see it in the Senator Harris's clip later on in this podcast and after we get into these articles, is just the perspective that CNN are sorry, it's just a perspective that 
these Democrats or these Republicans are just trying to push their one agenda or their one talking point down Amy Comey Barrett. And instead of actually taking this hearing seriously or taking this hearing as their job or as uh, unbiased and just trying to get to know Amy Comey Barrett and make sure that she fits the agenda or sorry that the, she fits the criteria not agenda of what it takes to be a judge instead they're just pushing down what they believe and what's inside their box and that was all anti-Trump narratives there was not really too much direct questioning of actual Amy Comey Barrett it was more either attacking uh, her, her stance on abortion, her stance on Obamacare, and her stance on Trump. And those were the three major talking points. And out of those three things, two of them were highly political and highly inside the Democratic box. And don't be mistaken, it wasn't just Democrats who were doing this. Now, Republicans were doing it from a different side of the aisle. But a lot of Republicans were simply just questioning Amy Comey Barrett or praising Amy Comey Barrett just off of who she was as a person and asking her general questions of praise and more trying to make her seem like a good character or a good human being, which is important. But again, that is fitting inside the Republicans' box. And we also have the separate third theme, or fourth theme, that was going on into the this hearings and these politics of last week, and partially this week too, is the main fact that Amy Comey Barrett is getting uh, elected or potentially going to be a Supreme Court justice in an election year and it's something that shouldn't happen we've all heard biden's stance or at least people who follow news not even really fully but partially know that joe biden is so, is basically said that the next president should decide who the next supreme court justice is and you always have the conservative line of saying well ruth Bader ginsburg said after four, uh, that a president lasts four years and that's her own words and and, and that goes against that what uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's final wish was or goes against politics in general. And that's something that should be, mo should be noted very much. I'll go ahead and get into comments, make sure I haven't missed anything, and then we'll get into the articles and get into kind of what insight was getting gained from then. And uh, we're checking YouTube here. Don't see YouTube, DLive, and Twitch. Okay, we're looking all caught up there as far as all of our chats go. So we'll go ahead and get into the article. And I just thought of, well, we'll go ahead and get into the article and, and go from there. So this article is by Fox News, and it states, The goose is, is cooked, acclaimed Senator Cory Booker at last week's final confirmation hearings of court nominee Amy Comey Barrett. It pretty much is. There's not a lot of Democrats that can hold up the Barrett nomination. Democrats have likely lost this round. Bearing unforeseen circumstances, the Senate will likely confirm Barrett to a lifelong appointment on the high court. Sure, Democrats go go to the mat like they did in a brawl two years ago with Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, but Democrats are playing the, sh the short game. Fate may have intervened and helped Republicans play the long game with Barrett, but Democrats look at the polls and like what they see. 
They suspect that they will pick up north of 10 House seats. Democrats have better have better than, e than even odds to flip the Senate, and they like Joe Biden's performance in upper Midwest, Pennsylvania, Florida, and even give him an opportunity in Texas and Georgia. Sorry about that. And real quick before we dive more into the article and talk a little bit more, that was the kind of the main thing I wanted to mention, but I saw I was going to go ahead and read what the article said and then give a real quick thought of the, the, the article itself. And that was the fact about Brett Kavanaugh. A lot of people were expecting Democrats to push a little harder against Amy Coney Barrett because a lot of the Democrats' questioning was against Trump or against Amy Coney Barrett's stance on Obamacare or her being religious and her stance against uh, abortions through her religion and her being part of the Peoples of, Peoples of Love or whatever the, the organization was from uh, a Christian organization. But a lot of conservatives especially were surprised that they, the Democrats weren't really just diving or digging into Amy Comey Baird as much as they suspected. But we don't really have to spend too much time because the article really gave, I think, the biggest reason as to why. And that reason was essentially that Democrats are liking polls. And although in 2016 Trump proved these polls really wrong, in some states he was expected to lose by, like I believe it was like 7 to 11 percent in, um, uh, in uh, Michigan and, uh, not Virginia, but Michigan and South Carolina, I think. It was one of those. I think Michigan for sure. I think Michigan was 7%, but I could be mistaken. But anyway, but Trump ended up winning by a significant, or sorry, not significant, but ended up winning by a half half a percentage point instead of losing by over 7% that the polls were, 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 were suspecting. And that was in a swing sort of state or a state that isn't necessarily suspected to go the Republican way, or especially in this election, to go the... Uh, to go the uh, Republican, yeah, to go the Republican way. I kind of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> but one quick note, and I've mentioned Stephen Crowder before. He's definitely a conservative. There's no doubt about that. And I tried to listen to uh, multiple types of types of YouTube commentaries, such as Actual Justice Warrior, Don't Walk Run Productions, Stephen Crowder, Ben Shapiro, Kyle Kalinske, and and especially I've been listening to a lot of libertarian podcasts like Pete Canoes and others in that sort of media outlet and just getting more than just one type of perspective because again I try to understand everything and kind of form my own perspective although my bias tends to make me fall more towards conservative route than other sort of routes from uh, the different perspectives but it's important to to note that and the reason i mentioned stephen crowder was the fact that he did a recent video where he was talking about these polling and how just historically bad these polls were in the last election their their numbers were awfully bad they weren't even close they lost by portions that that just have never happened before in united states politics and and he was saying that trump Although a lot of the electoral maps now have Trump losing 
uh, by a pretty significant amount of votes, even in uh, the electoral way and not necessarily just the popular vote, like Hillary did win in 2016. And if you do believe polling and you do believe those numbers, then, then Trump is losing by a significant amount of margin. And it would be very hard to see an actual Trump presidency these next four years. But Crowther was saying that you can't always believe these polls. And there's a big significant of silent Trump voters, especially the way Trump acts on Twitter and how just a bullish figure Trump is, that they're not necessarily going to tell you that they're voting for Trump, even if they do get the call for the posters. But even the Trump voters who don't get the call from posters and are just an average American are necessarily going to tell their friends or their circle that they're voting for Trump, especially if they're in more of a liberal or swing sort of state. And this article talks about a few uh, talking points, but that was kind of the main thing I wanted to mention with this Fox News article. This next article is by Fox, or sorry Fox, is by Vox. And it is obviously a leftist, uh, uh, a leftist perspective of Amy Comey Barrett. And it states here, seven key moments from the opening days of Amy Comey Barrett's Supreme Court hearing. And this is by Lee Zhu. <clears throat> Judge Amy Comey Barrett spent much of the first day questions in her confirmation hearing invoking what's known as the Ginsburg Rule and refusing to provide a position on whether she agreed with the past presidents. Or, yeah. It's an approach made famous by late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, though she actually spoke much more freely on some subjects, and it provides little additional insight regarding Barrett's position on issues including reproductive rights and an Affordable Care Act (ACA). Barrett did, however, commit more broadly. She noted that she was not hostile to the ACA, despite criticizing past decisions that upheld the law. She also said repeatedly that did she not that she did not have an agenda to overturn Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a 1992 decision that reformanded someone's right to an abortion through her past opinions signal on openness to limiting these rights. Again, this is her, the more of the religious angle inside um, Barrett as a person and not so much as a justice. And a lot of the, the debate from these hearings uh, as a side note, was the fact that she is Catholic and Christian, and those are two things of insight that form your, your own morals and your own beliefs off of it. And these morals and these beliefs can cause someone to maybe bias when it comes to actually making a decision based in the court. So a lot of Democrats uh, were talking uh, or questioning Amy Comey Barrett about her religion and how it might affect her decisions from that point on and that's something that's that that is important to note and Barrett was very much somebody that said you don't have to worry about me being religious or or me being catholic or whatever like that I am somebody that is going to look at the constitution and is going to vote on uh law based solely off of the Constitution and not taking in any other bias. So that tended to be a lot of her answers. Sorry about this car alarm. That's the privilege of doing this podcast outside. Uh, we'll see if, well, we'll see. Barrett doesn't say that the president is unable to signal handily delay an election. 
Congress, not the president, would have to pass a law to delay an election, but Barrett declined to make this point when she asked about the subject. Vox's Aaron Ruper wrote, When Barrett was pressed directly about the president's power to delay an election, she punted, indicating that she was unwilling to take a straightforward position on the question. If that question ever came before me, I would have to hear the arguments from ligaments and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process, she said. So, you know, I give off-the-cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit, and I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. Second point, Barrett won't commit to resolve on cases about the election. Again, Barrett declined to take a position on whether Roe was wrongly decided. So that was another very common point off of this debate. Um, essentially, she wanted to answer Diane Feinstein's questioning. And Diane Feinstein, when she first started, really right day one, was going uh, and, and trying to get perspectives off of Amy Comey Barrett that she did not want to provide to give any sort of opinion-based answer uh, while getting questioned about her policies and what they might be. And that's something that is very, very, uh, that happened throughout multiple, multiple, multiple days of these hearings. Amy Comey Barrett very often decided not to answer a question through using her, 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 uh, theory of law that she shouldn't have to answer these questions because she's not a legal pundit. And that was a very big topic of consideration. Now this next article is by Politico and it says five takeaways from the Amy Co Senators gave Barrett a promotion. At the hearings began on Monday, Democrats publicly argued that Barrett's confirmation could be stopped or at least postponed if Americans flooded Capitol Hill with calls demanding they be put off. But the prospect seemed to have inflated by Wednesday, sorry, the prospect seemed to have evaporated by Wednesday with Democrats all but con conceding her confirmation is a done deal. In one exchange about ethics, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse informed Barrett that the Supreme Court justices have fewer disclosure arguments about stock outside groups as compared to federal judges and member of Congress. Second one, Barrett gets feisty. As she did Tuesday, Barrett spent most of the day Wednesday par parrying senators' questions rather than answering them, but in her second day being grilled, she was feistier in her responses to Democrats seeking to put her on the spot. Barrett tangled with Senator Dick Durbin over a dissenting opinion she authorized last year, arguing that nonviolent felons should not be automatically lose the right to own a gun. Durbin said that the Seventh Circuit judge opinion adapted a framework that would have made it easier to take away a felon's right to vote his or hers right to own a firearm. Barrett responded by accusing the Illinois Democrat of twisting her words. Third one, grappling over Griswold. Or Griswold. For a second day, Democrats pressed Barrett without success to share her views on a key 55-year-old pristine critical to the Supreme Court's privacy justice and the legal under underpinnings for abortion rights. But the appeals court 
judge flatly refused to say whether she argued with the high court's 1965 decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, which guaranteed married couples the right to purchase contraceptives. Fourth, where 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 was Luther or Lutheran or whatever? With the Democrats' nearly relentless focus on the Affordable Care Act, some other crucial matters the Supreme Court could take up in the coming years got short-shifted. Among them was the court's approach to regulatory issues and hundreds and hurdles that a conservative court could throw in the way of environmental and safety regulations, likely to, to be prioritized if Democrat Joe Biden wins the White House and Democrats control Congress. The biggest fear among some liberals is that the court could declare a wide swath of federal regulations invaded by declaring them beyond the authority of the federal government to regulate decisions that would all be impossible for Congress to overrule. Fifth, a fifth freedom goes missing. Although Barrett has been a law professor for nearly two decades and has spent more than three years on the federal bench, Senator Ben Sasse managed to trip her up Wednesday with a rather basic question about the Fifth Amendment. In a wind-up to what he called a public catechism about the Bill of Rights, he asked her to name the five freedoms protected by the first key passage in the document. Speech, religion, press, assembly, speech, press, religion, assembly. She counted them off her right hand. I don't know what I am missing. Redress or protest, Sisi quickly chimed in describing what the Constitution calls the right to petition the government. Sometimes softballs turn out to not be softballs, Barrett said with a laugh near the end of the day Wednesday. You can have two glasses of wine tonight, Graham said. He graveled the session to close, allowing Barrett's revolution that she enjoyed a glass of wine after the 12-hour long day Tuesday. So those were some key takeaways and articles about essentially what happened in these hearings. And now we're going to be playing some video clips from several senators and really highlights throughout the, the couple day hearings and the process of Amy Comey Barrett. This first clip is probably the most, not famous, but the most widely seen clip that I have seen from these hearings. And it was Senator Maisie Hirona from, I believe, Hawaii, if I am remembering right. And well, I'll just let her speak and you can hear what she had to say. Uh, to ensure the fitness of nominees for a lifetime appointment to the federal bench or to any of the other uh, positions uh, for any of the committees on which they appear, uh, I ask each nominee these two questions and I will ask them of you. Since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? No, Senator Hirono. Have you ever faced discipline or entered into a settlement related to this kind of conduct? No, Senator. You use the term sexual preference. Alrighty, so you heard there are two questions about if she's ever sexually assaulted anyone in her time of being a professor, law student, judge, or whatever else she might want to say. Uh, in her career, basically, as a, uh, in her career, or her being a person. And it was rather bizarre, but and a lot of people were somewhat confused of her motives of doing so, because no one even suggested that at all. And Brett Kavanaugh obviously got ridiculed for his sexual harassment in quotations 
that was outright false. And everybody saw what happened with that, and Brett Kavanaugh is obviously a Supreme Court justice. So, a lot of people just found these questionings to be rather odd. And then she went on to ask her about sexual preference. And the dictionary ended up changing their definition of sexual present. Uh, sexual preference after these hearings based off of basically what Maisie Hirona are was saying of what sexual preference was and that really wasn't a super highlight of the actual hearings because it didn't really relate that much to what Amy Kelly Barrett would do as a judge or is as a person so we'll go on to this next video clip and this is of good old Cory Booker and we're just going to play a little bit and skip around because this is this whole 22 minutes and obviously we're not going to watch his entire 22 minute clip of these hearings but he kind of says the same sort of thing throughout it so we'll just play and go from there I'm, I'm doing well, really well. I'm sure that, that part of that smile is the fact that I'm the second to last uh, Democrat um, We just froze. Alrighty, I guess we're not going to be hearing from Cory Booker. I'll just basically describe this what Cory Booker did. Cory Booker was basically asking uh, Amy Comey Barrett off of her opinions um, about racial injustice. And you mentioned several statistics about how blacks are incarcerated for weed despite them losing using less weed than uh, other Americans are what you want to say from there. So that was kind of his major talking point was that Amy Comey Barrett was uh, her or her main. Ugh, he was asking her perspective off of racial injustice based off of her stance and others based um, based off of her stance of racial injustice. I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit, but. Cory Booker was basically wanting to know her perspective or speaking out loud to Americans about his perspective off of injustice in, uh, with the black community. Now, I was talking about this at the very beginning of the podcast, and this is with uh, Senator Kamala Harris and her uh, hearing talk. I wouldn't even say really questioning, although it was questioning. Uh, but we'll just kind of let it play because a lot of what she was saying was fully just based off of one perspective or one thought. And that was basically an anti-Trump sort of narrative more than actually questioning who the person was of Amy Comey Barrett. And how we got here. So we are in the middle of a deadly pandemic that has hit our country harder than any other country in the world. More than... To require that lawmakers see their faces and understand how they would be hurt if there was a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Brave activists in the disability community staged sit-ins on the Hill. Seniors protested. Well, we got paused again. <laughs> That's another privilege of doing this whole thing outside. And I might find a better location here in the future for the podcast. But really, I don't want to play the whole 22-minute clip either of Senator Kamala Harris and her questioning. 
But a lot of what Kamala Harris did was talk about uh, their talking points that really all Democrats talked about at some point throughout the multiple days of hearings. And that was the Affordable Care Act as you were hearing there. And then instead of really asking questions, she went more in an anti-Trump sort of narrative of, and, and almost kind of claimed Amy Comey Barrett of believing in what Trump believes and being someone that isn't good for the country based off of that. But one of the real interesting things would happen from a Republican questionnaire, because the Republicans tend to, to fall along the lines of that, um, tended to fall, I'll let the helicopter pass. Hello, helicopter. They tended to fall along the lines of questioning Amy Comey Barrett in a praise sort of way. But Senator Ben Sasse went more on a, uh, what he called an 8th grade civic lesson about how politics work and more importantly, oh, the government and senators are separate than what the judges' role is. And I just thought that I would play part of the clip in, uh, with Senator Ben Sasse and what he had to say about 8th grade civics and in general teaching the American people and basically... Uh, other senators across the aisle of what their role was in these hearings and the video is doing the circle of doom <laughs> come on alright well we'll have to wait for that video to load these videos are working out very good the, one of the more interesting points, and I'm not going to show show this video, but I just thought I would briefly mention it, and I do have it in the comic or in the uh, description of wherever you might find your uh, podcast from. But if you are listening to it live, I will post it after I finish here uh, on my Discord as far as if you want to watch this video yourself. But essentially, there was an example where they brought a former student of Justice Amy Comey Barrett, our... Well, not, well, a former student of Amy Comey Barrett, and she was blind, and the fact that Amy Comey Barrett gave her further support because she had to deeply rely on technology in order to, uh, in order to get through schooling in, in Notre Dame. And her technology was starting to get a little, little fragile, so she wanted to make sure that it would be able to last. But this is from Ben Sassy. I think it would benefit us and benefit uh, the watching country and especially watching eighth grade civics classes. So I'd like to um, distinguish first between civics and politics because there was a time, the chairman said at the beginning of this hearing, uh, there was a time when people that would be as different as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she was a heroic woman, that's absolutely true, and Antonin Scalia, another brilliant mind and, and your mentor, people that different could both go through the Senate and get confirmation votes of 95 or 98 votes. And the chairman said at the beginning of the hearing, he doesn't know what happened between then and now. I think some of what happened between then and now um, is we decided to forget what civics are and allow politics to swallow everything. So if I can start, I'd like to just remind us of the distinction between civics and politics. So then he goes on to basically describe the role of 
judges in a row of government. And this clip is 2 minutes and 24 seconds long, and I'm not going to play the whole thing here, but I would highly suggest watching this clip if you are interested in hearing the rest, or interested in just hearing civics again. Because I do think it was very important that Ben Sassy do that, especially in the first day, because he did kind of set the stage for all that happens within the uh, hearings and I did think that that was very smart of Ben Sassy. and I do think as a Republican I, that Ben Sassy's questions were a little bit more different than an average Republican of just general praise of Amy Comey Barrett as a person or as a constitutional judge and all of that or any of those sort of examples based off of it but Ben Sassy was very much providing different sort of content throughout the hearings are different sort of questions that I also think needed to be heard. So Ben Sassy, I think, did a very good job from the Republican aisle of questioning uh, Amy Comey Barrett. Now, one of the major kind of funny things that came came uh, from these was uh, Senator Feinstein. And we're going to get to that. But first, I wanted to talk about the town halls because I think it's a little bit easier to talk about the town halls here and we'll have a little bit of a funny break before we get into all of the polling numbers and recent data. So we'll go ahead and start with the town halls. And again, I'll give my brief perspective of the situation with the town halls. But I'm going to first check on the comment section and make sure I haven't missed anything from you guys before we just move along here. But the town halls were very interesting, mainly for the fact that uh, good old town halls were, were, were divided. So you had your town hall of, uh, with Donald Trump, and then you had your town hall with Joe Biden. And they were separate town hall events with separate hosts, but they happened at the same time or very close to each other in timing. And I did watch part of both of the town halls. As in, in those events and then also we're going to be reading articles based off of it but it was kind of funny because the main reason it became a town hall and not another debate was the fact of Donald Trump needing to get COVID tested and he did get COVID tested and he ended up becoming positive and such but that didn't necessarily do much for the average person when it came off of President Donald Trump and so instead of, of Joe Biden going to a hearing with Donald Trump, he instead decided that he was going to have a town hall. And then Donald Trump decided that he was going to have a town hall because the debate commission didn't want to organize another separate town hall event uh, because of what happened. And it just is rather interesting because a lot of things that happened there, uh, a lot of people in more in the conservative aisle were arguing on the fact that Donald Trump and a debate because they thought that since Donald Trump tested uh, negative before the debate that a physical debate could have been done between the two and not just a virtual debate because Donald Trump was able to have a town hall in the first place. So the fact that he was still able to have a town hall event on the same day that Joe Biden had his town hall and he tested positive after beating the virus and I think it was like four or five days. A lot of conservative type opinions are, are political commentators were arguing that a debate could have been done in place of these town halls. But that was a whole sort of separate aisle. And now we obviously have to talk about the town halls themselves and what actually happened in the physical events. So, 
a lot of people who watch these events or watch highlights of these events or read articles on these two town halls would say that they were two tells of a different story. You had a very calm town hall and you had a very bullish, very bah! town hall. You know, somebody that was on attack 24-7. And I think you know which one was which. You had Joe Biden's town hall, which was for the most part very calming. And then you had Donald Trump's town hall, which is very bullish and very fighty and very authoritative, you know, very confrontational and all of those sort of catchy words on uh, an aggravated Trump. And a lot of people, the average American, if that was the only thing they saw of both candidates, would think that Donald Trump was a very bullish guy. And obviously he is. But one of the major things about this, and something that I don't think is really talked about enough, was the fact of who the hosts were for each town hall. And again, I want to make this clear, because I am not a, a, a Trump fan really at all that much. I don't think, what, especially what he says is very good. And really his policies for the most part aren't even that good really either. He hasn't been able to do too much. And a lot of his supporters would say that's because he gets stopped by Democrats and all of, of those sort of um, ideas. But putting that aside, you, he still hasn't done that much as president from what he said he was going to do. And, and that's something that, that, that needs to be noted. But that's kind of besides the whole point here. The main point was the two hosts that happened. Uh, Donald Trump's host was is a wife of a Democratic spokesperson, not a spokesperson, uh, not a lobbyist, shoot, can't remember exactly what his job is, but his her husband is someone who's on the Democratic aisle and is a Democrat and works as part of, part of his job is being a Democrat. And she is a, a, a commentator or uh, the questionnaire, and she was very confrontational to Trump. She would ask continuous questions. The whole first 20 minutes of the town hall with Donald Trump was over COVID and him not getting tested before the debate or did you get tested before the debate. His COVID response, COVID talk in general. And that's something that, that she didn't just ask one or two questions and moved on to the next topic but rather asked good five or six questions before even moving on to the next topic. She was relentless at asking Donald Trump about the same topic over and over. And then you tune in to the Joe Biden campaign, and, and there was one question where the commentator there was basically wanting, uh, wanting uh, Biden to explain if he would court pack or not. And asked one more question basically saying, look, can you please tell us? And Joe Biden said basically no. And then he decided to move on. So there was not very much questions against Joe Biden within that town hall. And if you take those two events as being separate, which they were, I think that Joe Biden's town hall was more effective. But I also think it was a town hall. The purpose of a town hall is getting the average or sorry, not really the average, but getting people's opinions, getting people's questions of topics answered from these people. So these people are physically asking the question to that candidate, and that candidate then answers the question. And they also have the first section and the end section 
that gets asked by the monitor that are basic topics that people want to hear about from uh, the town hall or the average American wants to hear about such as court packing and that's a very important issue when it comes to those two uh, major events. So I do think that Biden's town hall was more effective as a town hall and also ran as a town hall. So the people that organized Biden's town hall did a very good job in doing so and the people that organized Trump's town hall didn't really do a very good job. It seemed very much more of a debate than the actual town hall. Now which candidate do I think performed better is a little bit harder to decide on when it comes to the conspiratorial tweet he retweeted claiming Osama still alive is false. Skin decides for themselves. Then it says Trump versus Trump. Trump is dialing into friend outlet to recount his ordeal and trying. Over the past on Fox News or Fox Business Times along with chats on news all. A conservative safe space is for most of his presidency. When he emerged into NBC slet, things felt much colder. A lawyer by training Guthrie would not let up when Trump evaded questions about his coronavirus diagnosis. He tested day of the his views on QAnon, our views on mail-in voting. And again, we have kind of both perspectives on Biden's town hall now. Biden's position on court packing depends. Biden didn't clarify his position Thursday night on the push by some progressives to add seats to the Supreme Court, but he said he would do so before the election. Pressed on the issue, he largely ducked since Trump nominated Amy Comey Barrett to fill the seat of the late liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Biden said he is not a fan of court packing, but whether he ultimately changes his mind depends on how it turns out, and if they're actually real or I have debated on the
floor of the Senate about Barrett's confirmation. It does not take place and Republicans rush to confirm Barrett before the election, he said. I am opening to consider what happens from that point on. Some coronavirus clarity. Ever since Trump entered Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, two of the president unanswered questions about his diagnosis, lung image showed, and whether he tested negative ahead of the first presidential debate. Again, I don't know why they said that at the end when they already said it in the article in the first place, but again, coronavirus was a major topic within the town hall, of uh, especially Trump's town hall. And again, I think it's very important to understand how the town halls went. I and mean, you could argue that Trump escalated his town hall by the nature of who he is or just how bullish of a man Trump is. He's not afraid to attack you and not afraid to, to, to have feisty words with you back. And Joe Biden's more of a laid back, relaxed sort of person. He's not really going to get too feisty at you. If you get him too annoyed, he might say, oh, shut up, or whatever, and kind of say these sort of stances. But I don't think the average American really sees Joe Biden as being an angry man as much as they might see Trump being an angry man. And we'll see some of that from the clips here in a second of those two town halls. But I do think it's important to understand how both of the town halls were ran. And if you want to strictly go off of those two events, I do think that Biden was very stable and very level-headed person. And he probably won the average mind of the average American uh, for these town halls. But anybody that knows anything about how the media works knows that Trump wasn't really given a chance uh, if you do think that Trump didn't escalate. Now, the chance that Trump may have escalated and made it more confrontational than it had to have been is also a very real possibility with Donald Trump. Now, these are some highlights from the two town halls. The day before and the day before, and I was always in great shape, and I was in great shape for the debate. As president, I... run into some more video problems we're gonna wait for the video to load and then we'll try to play it again I don't know why they didn't work uh, for this as well as they they should have I tested it yesterday uh, and today I made sure all the videos loaded back and were ready to go before I actually physically started today's episode but I guess the connection went a little bit haywire uh, so we're not going to be able to really show those videos, but other, and I do argue that was mainly because of how the two town halls were run. One kind of more peacefully and more of a town hall, and one more of a debate because of who the moderators were. Now this next thing I kind of teased, and now we're going to talk about, and that was with Senator Feinstein. Senator Feinstein, at the end of all of these hearings, went ahead and hugged Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the, the, the hearing uh, campaign, or not the campaign, but the, uh, the uh, shoot, I'm forgetting the words, the head of those hearings, but he's the head of the, anyway, you get what I'm saying. They hugged each other because they both run th those hearings, both run that committee. So she, she went ahead and hugged Lindsey Graham without a mask, and several uh, 
of uh, commentary of our, our organizations got the mad at the center of doing it. And this is from the states. She represents the path. A Senate hub is an entity. Senator's response to framework change has sparked color retirement from prayers. So, Peter will just die on the Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Ending a contagious week of Supreme Court confirmation hearings with a full body embrace of Lynn Graham, the committee's Republican chair. This has been one of the best set of hearings I've participated in. Spark called among progressives for her retirement and outcry that she had been in office for too long. And the California senators have progressive democratically have not used her for a long time. So that without taking away from what she had accomplished, it's got a where she is out of touch with where San Francisco is and where California is, said Dave Campus chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. He is not speaking on behalf of the organization. She represents the past of San Francisco and California, campus continued. It's not surprising that at a time where we are facing a crisis, when we have a right-wing supremacist being rushed through the Supreme Court, she's not up to the task. And it's not because Because of her age, it is because of who she is. And then it states how old Feinstein was and when she came into power, because she is obviously a very old lady herself. And we'll go on to this next article, and then I'll kind of give my general thoughts about the whole situation. And this is by the Washington Times, and it states, Dianne Feinstein's embrace of Lindsey Graham angers liberals. Liberal groups erupted in anger. Senator Dianne Graham, the Hopkins Supreme Court nominee, and Senator the Senator Bielsa, as Democrat member of the committee, so the Senator Dianne Graham, the Hopkins Supreme Court nominee, said that she went against the CDC protocols of the mask and social distancing, since the hearing was, in general, a very CDC-approved event. Which sounds kind of funny to say that it's CDC approved, but <laughs> anyway, so that was one sort of side of the, the the coin, and the other side of the coin was the fact that Senator Dianne Feinstein decided to hug a Republican. Period. No matter who the Republican really is, because we all know California is a very, very, very liberal state, and a progressive. Uh, a progressive state, some a state that that supports the most extreme part of the left, and and kind of uh, Portland may have become the new state of the of the uh, extreme left through.
Antifa are through recent events. <clears throat> but uh, California has been known to be that staple uh, Democratic state. Like Texas has been known to be the staple Republican state. Although many people are suspecting that Texas is turning more and more purple as more people move into Texas and don't change their political beliefs but come with their political beliefs after moving from a state such as California that we have seen in really the past election with Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. As at one point Beto was winning the vote and we all know that Ted Cruz ended up winning the um, the overall vote and what happened there. And this site isn't wanting to load up either by Fox News, but it basically was saying that this new organization called Narwhal, if I am saying that right, went against Senator Dianne Feinstein for her hugging Lindsey Graham. But basically the main reason that progressives seem to be more mad at Senator Dianne Feinstein was the fact that she was willing to hug a Republican and uh, through the state being so progressive and so censor or uh, how do I say it we don't know who Republican who who, who uh, California represents who is. They are, as I've said now they, they represent the left of the, the movement California has always been democratic she was willing to hug Lindsey Graham, two, as a convent, and three, all our progressive sort of followers that are all believe our party as religious values are believe that are part of them and who they are as the person and more that their type of country wants to be point. Some are with Joe Biden, and due to that information, because I did very much something that is getting seen to begin, if you believe, holes, thoughts, your experts, that should be important to vote. So, again, if you believe, and you're wanting to use more on the wrong, then fight a very large lead over Donald Trump, and that's something that should very much be noted. So, let's start with the article by Yahoo News slash YouGov poll. The Trump as Biden searches to his largest to his largest ever lead amongst among likely voters. With only two weeks left until election day, Joe Biden's lead over President Trump has widened to 11 percentage points, Biden's biggest margin over likely voters in any Yahoo News slash YouGov poll to date. Their survey, which was conducted from October 16th to 18th, shows that a majority of likely voters, 51%, now say that they are voting for a Democratic nominee, while just 40%
6% say that they are voting for Trump. Biden's lead, which is identical among registered voters, has gained has grown by three points since last week's Yahoo, Yahoo News and YouGov poll. The president has struggled to rebound over the past three weeks from a widely panned first debate performance and a COVID-19 outbreak that sent him to the hospital and sickened others in a all-time peak in 16 states. And it goes on to talk a little bit more about poll and the information they found in it. So again, if you're someone that believes polls, then 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 Joe Biden's definitely got. to win in this upcoming election but as we've seen from the last election with Hillary Clinton or the last presidential election I should say with Hillary Clinton polls are not always right this next one is by uh, NBC News and it's by David Mark and he states Trump trails Biden in swing states and national polls but here's why he can still win Joe Biden's campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon, recently warned supporters that despite the side's strong poll numbers in nation surveys, defeating President Trump shouldn't be taken for granted. There is still a long way to go in this campaign, O'Malley Dillon said on Twitter on October 14th. And, and we think the race is far closer than folks on this website, Twitter, think. Like, a lot closer. While O'Malley Dillon was using scare tactics to tamp down supporters overconfidence or she or she actually believes Biden is in, in in intimate danger of losing her message made since Trump can still win however a narrow the path be sure to be sure Trump faces a considerable more uphill battle against Biden President Barack Obama's two-term vice president and 36 year senator from Delaware than he did in 2016 facing Hillary Clinton the former Secretary of State New York Senator and First Lady whose disapproval ratings were among the highest of any modern presidential nominee. Biden's favorable rating is 44.5% and his unfavorable rating is 46.1% per the Real Clear Politics average. Trump's approval rating, meanwhile, is 44.8% with a 53.8% disapproval rating. Average shows Biden is widely seen as a publicitary veteran lawmaker and an empathetic figure who would restore normality to the White House after a template of Trump years. The former VP leads the national polls vote by nearly 10% according to the latest polls, and also in nearly all swing states, most likely to decide the election, which includes several states Trump won in 2016, among them Arizona, Michigan, well, North Carolina, North Carolina and Wisconsin. I don't know where that video is coming from. Though this landscape appears to favor Biden, several factors still offer Trump's campaign hope. The electoral moment can be divided up between candidates and of different ways to lead the president some late in-game paths to victory. So the article goes on to talk about the electoral map compared to Hillary Clinton and then the electoral map that is getting shown now through a lot of polling information and some early voting numbers I believe that have come in. And you might have seen this figure if you're following any sort of recent political news. 
but their main reasoning was similar to what Crowder's reasoning was that I mentioned earlier in this video, and that is the fact that that polling numbers are not always 100% right, and you can't always believe them as, well, if they're not 100%, if they're not 100% right, then they're not fully truthful or truthful at, for that matter. And because of that, you, the election may not seem as widely open as it, as, it, as it appears to be now. Now, this next one is by 538, and it states, Trump is losing ground with white voters, but gaining amongst black and Hispanic Americans. There's a well-known truth in politics. No one group swings the election. But it doesn't mean that the Democratic trends bubbling beneath the surface can't have an outsized effect. Take the 2016 President Trump won in a large part because he carried white voters without college degrees, but without a college degree by a bigger margin than any other recent GOP presidential nominee. Through there had been signs that, that the group was shifting rightward for a while. Likewise, in 2008, a strong showing by Democrats in suburban districts and among white voters with four-year college degrees helped the party retake the House, a shift we first saw in 2016 when Trump likely became the first Republican to lose the group in 60 years. And this is just stretching the surface. In the past few weeks, fast, in the past few years, we have seen hints that more women voters are identifying as Democrats, and that some non-white voters might be getting more Republican-leaning. The question then, in 2020, as it is in every election, is what will happen? What will elaborate? Is what will the electorate look like this time around? Can we expect a con constitution of what we saw in 2016, a continuation of what we saw in 2016 and 2018, or might some of these trends lower reverse direction? And of course, there are any surprise linking beneath the surface what we haven't quite identified yet. We've tried to answer the question comparing data from 2016 and 2020 data from the Democratic Fund and USCLA newspaper, or yeah, database. One factor driving that Biden looks to be doing better than Clinton among, among white voters without college degrees. A voting block that made up close to half of the overall electorate in 2016 and forms the majority of the population in key swing states such as Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. While Clinton lost the group by more than 20 points four years ago, Biden is behind by just 12 points in UCLA's nationscape polling. This isn't entirely a surprise. We saw some signs of Biden's strength with non-white colleges, non-college non whites in 2020 Democratic primary, as he did better than Clinton in these countries and had larger shares of white Americans without college degrees. It's hard to pinpoint exactly where we are seeing in this, though one possible explanation is that as an older white man, Biden just resonates more with those voters than Clinton did. Trump isn't losing ground among white voters, though. White men, for instance, look likely to back Trump by 20 points again, and Trump is, is making inroads with college-educated white voters. Trump lost his group by more than 10 points in 2016, and Republican House and Senate candidates lost it by similar margins in 2018. But Trump may be running even closer among them now, at 538's Percy Bacon Jr. recently noted. And it talks a little bit about, about the numbers and, and comparing uh, with these charts to other uh, 
to the other presidential race with Hillary Clinton. So this this article is showing that the race could look a lot more different than we first thought it could look like in the past. Waiting for this article to load up. Here we go. And this is by CNN Politics and it states three reasons why the final presidential debate still might not happen. <clears throat> On Thursday night at Belmont University, Nashville, Tennessee, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden will share a debate stage for the last time before the November 3rd election. Maybe. Well, maybe. One, Biden said last week Trump needed to test negative for COVID-19 on, on the day of the debate or he wouldn't show up. Here's the exchange, and it shows the exchange. Number two, the Commission on Presidential Debate is set to meet Monday afternoon to discuss the potential rule changes in advance of the Thursday's debate. Here's the thing, we just learned about the meeting on Monday morning, less than three full days before the debate, which is well kind of last minute. Remember that the day after the, the, the debacle of the first debate between Trump and Biden in late September, the commission released a statement that said this, Last night's debate made clear that additional structure could be added, the format of, of remaining de uh, debates to ensure a more orderly discussion of issues. 3. Trump is Trump. In the words of Kevin Gardner, anything is possible. In Trump, we have the least, uh, least predictable president ever. He is a showman and pro pro uh, first and foremost, he does things to elect a reaction and that's especially true right now as Trump faces the likelihood that he is going to lose in 15 days. There's literally nothing that I can fathom Trump trying between now and November 3rd in order to win. Real quick about the November 3rd date. I don't think that we are going to know a president by November 3rd because of all of the mail-in ballots. There's just no way that everything is going to work with the Postal Service to get every one of the ballots in and counted. And even if you say that you're only going to use a majority, and saying that you're only going to use a majority and not count everyone's vote is, well, two things. One, it's literally impossible to count everyone's vote. Because even if you're not intentionally trying to do, to, to do uh, voter fraud through mail-in balloting or mail-in ballots, it's still going to happen just simply because of human nature. And that's kind of the second point, is human nature. So even if you don't necessarily attend to do voter fraud or to mishandle votes, we're still humans and we're still most likely going to happen either through the post office error or the actual error of the person filling out the ballot. Because we heard a couple weeks ago on this podcast and it made some news on several political commentators on YouTube was the fact about naked ballots with several celebrities or the Pennsylvania councilwomen or uh, governors or government officials in Pennsylvania being naked in, a, in an ad about naked ballots and what you need to do or the steps you need to do to ensure that your vote is counted. So even if you're not intentionally trying to do fraud, you still want all of your votes to count or at least the most amount of votes to count as possible. So by the mere fact of saying that you're not going to count everyone's vote, the system is flawed. And that's the biggest problem about mail-in voting in general. But that's kind of besides the whole point. Because we are doing melon balloting at such a large scale because of COVID in this election cycle, there is going to be no way that we're going to know who the president is right off the bat on November 3rd like we have known in the past because of 
the mass amount of mail-in ballots that are going to have to be counted. So, again, this next article is also on the debates. And if the third debates do happen, according to Politico and this headline here, debate commission is to cut the mics at Trump and Biden showdown. So the last debate, they're planning to cut each other's mics when they go on to talk. And that is something that is significantly interesting. Because after the first debate, we heard that the second debate might potentially have the debate commission cutting each other's mics off when they go to speak. We obviously know that Donald Trump and Joe Biden do not like each other and don't like each other for, for several reasons, for policies and political reasons and for personal reasons. A lot of politicians that are on opposite aisles of each other don't like each other because of policy or political reasons. And that's really all it goes from there. But especially with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they also don't like each other personally. They physically don't like who each other are. And therefore, it makes the debate very confrontational more than actually informative. So by cutting their mics off and cutting the, the, the ability for Donald Trump or for Joe Biden to interrupt is something that is very interesting. And uh, we'll read the article here. President Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden will have their micro microphones muted during Thursday's presidential debate to ensure each candidate can get his points across uninterrupted. The Commission on the Presidential's Debate announced the measure on Monday's evening in response to consult interruptions that married the first presidential debates last month. During the event, the moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News had to repeatedly intervene to keep Trump from interjecting during Biden's remarks, Biden at one point told the president to shut up. The candidates' microphones will be muted only during the two-minute opening remarks at the start of each 15-minute segment of the debate. During the reminder of the debate, the microphones will be on and allow an open discussion. The commission announced time taken up by interruptions by an opponent will be given back to the candidate. During the times dedicated for open discussions, it is the hope of the commission that the candidates will be respectful for each other's time, which will advance civil disclosure, or sorry, which will advance civil discourse for the benefit of the viewer. Trump has repeatedly accused the debate's organi organizers of working to bolster his, his, his opponent. His, his re-election re campaign denounced the idea of granting an unnamed person the ability to shut off a candidate's microphone in a letter to the commission earlier Monday. It is a big thing to note. The spokesperson for President Trump has basically called the debate commission Biden's commission or Biden's responsible for the debate commission. Basically, they're one and the same thing. They're not a neutral source. They're somebody that agrees with Biden more than Trump. And obviously, I don't know if that's fully true, but uh, we all know from the first debate, the first debate was very, was not very insightful and really not a debate at all. And the fact that it even happened was more of an embarrassment to American politics than anything else. And because of it, I think that the debate commission wanted the debate to be more of an actual debate and more truthful. But I don't know if the debate is even necessarily going to happen. And until it happens, I'll be surprised to see this muted mic idea working. And if it is used, it's going to be interesting to see Trump's approach. Because a lot of people thought that Trump was going super aggressive in the first debate. In the next debate, he was going to pull back and see 
of Joe Biden came out more aggressive and say, look, he's unhinged. And that was kind of his strategy because everyone knows Trump is bullish, but everyone is kind of debating where, where Biden is and exactly where he is mentally and physically because he's a little bit more grayer or harder to read than Trump is because Trump is just outright a bullish. <laughs>